Welcome to Intriguing Interviews, where fascinating people share captivating stories. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio hitchhiking journey. Today, we'll talk with Rick Archer, a man who's lived one of the most interesting lives you'll ever hear about. To prepare you for our journey into the depths of insanity with Rick, I'll share a story with you about a secretly kinky wedding, about a poker game with the highest stakes imaginable, and about the undying influence of the dead. When I was growing up, I remember seeing a photo of my mother and father from their wedding day. They're side by side in the photo with a bouquet held in between them. When she saw this photo, my mother would delightedly point out the glint of steel just behind the bouquet in the photo. That glint of steel was a sign of my father's insecurity. You see, he was so worried that on their wedding day, something bad would happen and he would get separated from my mother that he handcuffed them together, wrist to wrist, for the entire wedding day. That glint of steel in the photo was the handcuffs that they had to try and hide in every wedding photo. Now, growing up, I never thought this was very odd. Like many aspects of my childhood, I took it for granted that it was, well, normal. I figured lots of people got married in handcuffs. Maybe it was even a tradition. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that I happened to tell some people about this, and they all gave me a strange, disbelieving look. That's when I finally realized, wait a minute, I've never heard of anybody else getting married in handcuffs. Ah, that's because it's weird. Perhaps it won't surprise you when I say my father, David, had issues. In fact, if my mother hadn't asked David out, they would never have gotten married. And he wasn't even biologically my father. He was infertile from a previous marriage. His ex-wife had made him get a vasectomy. So he and my mother adopted my older sister, then had me through artificial insemination, which I suspect only made his insecurities worse. My family lived in Washington State on a small farm with horses that lay in the shadow of Mount Rainier. It was a beautiful, idyllic setting. But despite the peace and tranquility, David was a heavy drinker. As soon as he got home from his job at Boeing, he'd start drinking. On weekends, he'd get together with friends and they'd drink and play poker far into the night. Once, when I was two and a half years old, he went to a poker game at a friend's home. Early the next morning, there was a knock on our door. When my mother answered it, she saw a police officer. The officer said my father had been driving home at about 4 a.m. and was so drunk that he passed out, crashed into a parked car, and died instantly.
couple of years after David died, my mother started dating a new man named Bill. One night, Bill came over for dinner. Afterwards, my mother walked him out to his car, but then they walked back into the house and said his car wouldn't start, so he'd have to spend the night. The next morning, however, his car seemed to start just fine. And so it was that nine months later, my little sister was born. But Bill had no interest in marrying my mother. In fact, they split before my sister was born. And Bill had little interest in being a father, so we rarely saw him and he got away with paying very little child support. After a few years, Bill discovered he had cancer. It was treatable, but he ignored it. So the cancer grew worse, and when my little sister was five years old, her father died. David and Bill both died in ways that were, quite frankly, their own fault. One could have sobered up. The other could have gotten treatment. They both could have chosen to be good fathers. And their choices were very influential. When I was five, my mother had to sell the farm and move into a much smaller house in town. She wound up raising three kids alone, which made her emotionally volatile. My older sister ran away when she was 16. I grew up hiding away, scared of my mother's temper, before I hitchhiked away at 17 and never looked back. And because of these things, my little sister didn't get to have much of a family at all. All thanks to two men who didn't act like men. Sometimes, the people who should love us the most hurt us the worst. Meanwhile, a stranger we'll never meet again may save our life with a kindness and compassion that we can never repay, but we'll never forget. We'll see that in today's interview with Rick Archer. This is the first in a series of fascinating interviews with Rick, who just might be the most interesting man you've never heard of. Rick Archer went from being a loser, living in poverty, without a single friend, to creating the most popular and successful independent dance studio in the country. And he did it through a series of lucky breaks and risky ventures straight out of the movies. Rick's life story is a roller coaster ride of ups and downs. It's filled with people who act egregiously vile, but also with people who act deeply kind. It's a story rife with chance encounters, lucky breaks, and near-death experiences. Luckily, Rick is a wonderful storyteller and an insightful human being. So as you listen to one incredible story after another, you'll enjoy fresh insights into life and other people that will surprise and delight you. In this episode, we dive into the start of his life. We'll learn how he and his father both lost the same eye, how he saved his mother from death twice, how a ride in a limousine while he was unconscious made him the loneliest kid in school, and how a chance encounter with a golfer taught him the secret to success with girls. So buckle up. Put on your protective eyewear and listen to the remarkable life and times of Rick Archer. What is the story behind your left eye? I was five years old and um, I had a piece of rope I wanted to cut in two and I was unsupervised and I pulled 
a table knife towards me. I was just kind of like sawing through the rope very slowly. And my mother called me and said, it's uh, time to go. And I panicked and decided to give it one big jerk. And the knife went right through the rope and kept on going through my eye. And <laughs> so uh, that's, that's how I lost my left eye. Do you remember that? Do you remember the knife going into your eye, that incident? Yeah, actually, I have a vision of it. Watching it go through my eye is kind of a little weird. It didn't hurt, <laughs> interestingly enough. I don't know why, huh. but it didn't hurt. Wow. I just kind of watched it pierce through the eye. It, kind of, it just kind of nicked it, really. There was something ca- called a um, detached retina, and they didn't have the technology to save it in those days. Huh. Uh, your dad lost the same eye as well. Is that right? Absolutely. He uh, was walking home. He was eight years old. He heard something rustle. There was, he's walking past a brick wall. He heard a noise. He looked up and it was a brick falling directly on top of him. By looking up, he caught the brick right in his eye. So he lost an eye too. <laughs> Gosh. It's sad. Yeah. <laughs> Terrifying too. Uh, will you so will you tell me the story about the trip you took to the carnival with your dad? Well, so my father knows that I'm going to lose the eye in, in even a more serious way. Uh, there's something called some kind of sympathetic optic nerve, where if the optic nerve in one eye goes bad, they've recorded cases where the other eye goes kaput as well. And the only thing they knew what to do in 1956 was just completely remove the bad eye to protect the good eye. Hmm. So he knew I was going to be going through this surgery, but he hadn't told me yet. So I was walking around with this big bandage in my eye, over my left eye. He took me to a carnival, and we played ring toss and maze and haunted house. We did that for about an hour, but what my father wanted to do was go see a stock car race, and that was in the back of the carnival. and. Uh, you know, I'd had fun, and so I, I willingly walked back there with him. But just then I saw this um, uh, arcade game where you shoot ducks with a wooden cork, and that was irresistible. And I grabbed my father's arm, and I, and I stopped him. I said, Dad, I want to go play that game. Please, just one more. They haven't started yet. And he argued with me. He said, no, you know, we're going to be late. We need to go. And just then there was a... A crash, the cars that had been warming up, I'd say about 30 feet to my left, but I couldn't see them. They were behind a wood fence. And a car came crashing straight through that fence, and it literally hit something and went airborne. So at about 100 and something miles an hour, the car whizzes by the two of us, maybe five feet away, comes back down to the ground, it hits a telephone pole. Uh, the car is smashed to smithereens. The poor driver is, is killed. The telephone pole breaks in half and collapses on top of the car. And my father and I haven't moved an inch. It's all happened in the blink of an eye. And my father turns and looks at me and he says, Son, if you hadn't stopped me, we would have been right in the path of that car. He said, You need to thank your guardian angel when you go to sleep tonight. And I think he was pretty, I think he was serious about that, Chad. <laughs> I think he kind of felt like fate had intervened. Yeah. So that was actually my first experience with fate. 
and I was all of five years old. And what bugged me about what my father said was, well, if my guardian angel saved me here, why didn't my guardian angel say something about that knife <laughs> uh, when I was pulling it the wrong direction? So I learned that fate is fickle. It doesn't always come to your aid when you want it to. That's, that's actually really interesting. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think about it a lot. So let's uh, move forward a little bit. So what was it like when your parents' marriage ended? The problem with my parents was they were ex they were both extremely bright. I mean, I will give them that. They're really smart people. My father, like you know, may have even been a genius as an electrical engineer. But he was poor and she was rich. So when he got out of um he was in uh the Battle of the Bulge uh, uh as a 19-year-old, that's where the Germans attacked the Americans in the winter of 1944 and my father was on patrol in a in a you know winter wonderland snow everywhere and a german sniper hit him just under just on the very top on his hip and it, you know it just shattered he shattered his hip and he was screaming in pain and they had to send him to a hospital in england and I asked him, Dad, was that the worst thing that ever happened to you? And he said, no, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I got to go home alive and a lot of my buddies didn't make it. So he had a pretty good attitude about that. He was kind of interested in fate himself. But he was poor when he got home. And the only way he was going to make it to college, besides the GI plan, was maybe marry my mother. Uh -huh. And so um, they did okay for a while, but he was a very handsome man, and she wasn't much of a looker. <laughs> and so there was a, a secretary at work who caught his eye, and he started working late, the proverbial working late. Uh -huh. And so they argued for a year. It was, it was horrible. I, you know, I cried myself to sleep and uh, clung to my dog, Terry. One day, they sent me to live with my aunt and uncle in Virginia for the summer. And by the time I came back, they were divorced. And my mother made a very strange deal with my father. He wanted the divorce. And she made a kind of a devil's bargain with the man. Uh, because of all the fighting, I was doing miserably at school. And I was acting out. You know, I was like a super angry kid. So they sent me to a psychiatrist as if they really needed a psychiatrist to figure out what was wrong with me. And the psychiatrist said, you got a bright son there, but he, um, he needs a challenge. I think that's what he needs. I think he needs a challenge. So I suggest you put him in a private school where my, where my boys go. Mm -hmm. But it's expensive. You know, it's a private school. And my father doesn't, I mean, he's got a middle-class salary. So he says, no, I'm not going to send him there, even though I passed the test. And my mother said, I'll tell you what, Jim, you want that, you want that marriage, you know, you want that divorce, you want to go see your honey? I know about your girlfriend. So if you want wow. this divorce, <laughs> you're going to put our son <laughs> in that school. So basically, I lost a father and I gained a school in the bargain. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I'm curious, why, why was she... 
If she was the rich one, why didn't she just pay for it? No, no. Well, her parents were rich. Oh. She, well, here's the problem, Chad. In the 50s, it was common for the wives to support their husbands while they were in college. So what happened is she dropped out of college mm. to, um, you know, to earn the money in the family. And um, when the divorce came along, there was no alimony. Mm-hmm. So she's the, he's the one with the college degree and the great career. Yeah. And she's getting a lousy $100 a month child support, and that's it. Which is nothing. It was, it was a little more in the 50s, but yeah. <laughs> right, it was nothing. <laughs> so that led to a bizarre existence for me. I'm fairly certain I was the poorest kid to ever go to that school in its history. Well, before, before we get into the school, let's stick with your home life for just a little bit more. Sure. Because you say that this uh, began what you call the, the four by nine area, which was nine years, nine jobs, nine homes, nine live-in boyfriends. So- right. My mother was a gypsy. She uh, couldn't afford a lot of things. So one of the things that had to go was rent. <laughs> so we kept getting evicted and I would have, you know, we'd have to move to another home. And she had live-in boyfriends. I never knew it at the time, but they were helping pay some of the bills. It was sort of like she was doing whatever she had to do to get by. But there were still times I would come home, you know, and the lights would be turned off or the gas would be turned off or the water would be turned off. Yeah. Or we'd have our latest eviction notice. And then the next morning I would go to school and be in classes with the sons and daughters of Houston's uh, millionaires and, you know, oil men. So it was a bizarre existence. I mean, I was, uh, uh, academically, I was on par, but socially I was the very bottom of the totem pole. And you said that your mother just went out with man after man after man. What was that like for you? Well, my mother was a lost soul. She needed, she needed companionship. Her first trick was to, um, volunteer at the local theater and I would sleep in the car while she was doing props at the theater. Wow. And I didn't like that much. So we started bringing the dog along. So I would sleep in the um, back seat with my dog till 11 o'clock at night. And then she would get in the car and drive us home. Sheesh. And then I, one night I noticed there was a car following us. So that hit the new phase. She was starting to bring men home after after the play was over. And after she worked her way through the cast, she switched over to um <laughs> after she worked her way she, through the cast. <laughs> she uh, switched to the Athens Bar and Grill. That was a um Greek bar on the Houston Ship Channel, uh where the Greek sailors would come in. They didn't speak a word of English, but there are some things that are universal and she would go and uh, pick a man up and bring him home for the weekend. And that led to some pretty interesting stories. One time I uh, was introduced to a man from Czechoslovakia who didn't speak a word of English, but he saw my chess set. So he challenged me to a game. I'm all of what, maybe 10 years old. And he systematically moves his pieces across the board doesn't even bother taking my pieces. He just keeps backing me up till he strangles me like an anaconda. And then he just starts laughing at me. Like, <laughs> here I am, this 10-year-old kid beaten by a guy who doesn't speak a word of it. Well, I'm, a, I'm already a bitter kid. I am a very bitter kid. Yeah. 
So when I find a chess book at the school's book fair, that's going to be my birthday present. Mm-hmm. So that's how I uh, taught myself to become the school's chess champion. Nice. You know. Just self-taught. Well, you know, the chip on the shoulder gets you a long way sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think as we go along, we see that that is a good motivator at times uh, in your story. Well, it wasn't an official championship. I just, I was never beaten. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, um, uh, s- sticking with your was sticking with your mother for a minute. So uh, a really powerful m- moment uh, is is that she took you onto into a snowstorm once. Could you tell me the story of that? So it's about three days before Christmas. I think we're talking about 1961. I'm 11 years old. My mother comes in my bedroom and says, I want you to pack. We're going to Lynn and Dick's house for Christmas. Uh, Lynn and Dick being my aunt and uncle, Dick being my mother's brother. And where did they live? In a city called McLean, Virginia, which is like where the CIA is, more or less. Oh, nice. A couple blocks down from the CIA. It's a beautiful wooded uh, house in the valley in northern Virginia. Very well-to-do. My my uncle owns a data processing company, and so he is uh, somewhat, somewhat wealthy. And I think my mother has bills. She's been evicted from about three homes in the last two years or three wow. apartments. And I think it's gotten to the point where she can't pay a single bill. I, she never tells me. I just, I'm just guessing. Huh. But she's very, very desperate. And she insists that we have to make this thousand-mile trip in the dead of winter. And I ask her, Does, do my aunt and uncle even know we're coming? And she says, no. Uh, we're going to be a surprise. <laughs> Christmas present. <laughs> oh, Christmas present, exactly. Well, here's the problem. My mother owned this very old convertible. Uh, I don't even know what make, but it was so worn out that you could actually see the, the street from the back seat. It was so rusted out, you could actually see whatever we're going across. Through the floor. Through the floor. And so you can imagine with being a convertible with a hole in the floor, there was no heat in this car. And so we took every blanket we owned. And of course, the dog was so cold. The dog wanted me as much as I wanted the dog to try to stay warm. So we leave in the middle of the night. Because my mother says you can make good time in the middle of the night. She had a choice between (laughs) the southern route of Louisiana or the northern route. And I don't know. She took the northern route. And in the morning, we ran smack dab into the worst snowstorm in about the last 20, 30 years of Louisiana history. Wow. Mind you, my mother didn't have the sense to check the weather report. So (laughs) that's... That she, should tell you something she, right she, there. She would have seen. She would have been, they would have been like, ah, this is the worst storm we've ever had. Maybe you shouldn't go out and drive. <laughs> About an hour, I say, Mom, this really isn't a very good idea. We still have time to just turn around and go back to Houston. Maybe you can just call Uncle Dick on the phone and uh, iron out whatever the problem is. She says, nope, we're going to go forward. It gets colder and colder, and pretty soon this... Um, Snow turns to slush, and then the slush turns to ice. 
And the next thing you know, this giant old car of ours is sliding, is skidding because we don't have snow tires and the tires we do have are very worn. And my mother's having trouble keeping the car in her lane. It's like weaving, it's drifting back and forth. I am absolutely panic stricken with fear. And we pass uh, a small town with a restaurant and I say, mom, we need to stop there. We need to talk this over. Uh, it's just too dangerous for us to continue. The, you can't control the car. And she says, uh, Rick, I I hear you, but we don't have any time to waste if we're going to get there by Christmas Eve. Sounds like sounds like her priorities at the moment were not. She was very determined to keep going. And for the next hour, we just barely, you know, we had one near brush with an oncoming vehicle after another. And I am so scared. I, I I leave the front seat and get in the back, you know, and and put as many blankets around me as possible in case there's a crash. Wow. And damn it, she loses control. The car literally goes ninety degrees to the highway. It cuts right across the path of a giant truck. The truck misses us by inches, and my mother goes into this deep snowbank. So the car is now 45 degrees vertical. There's no way this car is ever going to, <laughs> you know, get out. Yeah. And so we all just just sit there paralyzed with fear. I mean, this is a about as close as you can come to death. Yeah. And, and you could just freeze out there probably. We're freezing. We don't know a soul. There are no cell phones in these days. Uh, what are we going to do? Uh, in fact, I think that may have been what I, my next question was, Mom, what are we going to do? And she says, you're going to get out of the car, you're going to go up to the road, and you're going to hitch a ride back into that town we just came from. I said, Mom, I'm 11 years old. Are you crazy? You want me to go into town all by myself? I could be kidnapped. She says, it's time for you to grow up. No one's going to kidnap you. I said, Mom, why can't you get up on the road with us? Because they're more likely to take pity on a pitiful little kid oh. than they are me. So get out of the car. I, can I take my dog? And she says, no, you're going to leave the dog. I need protection. I'm keeping the dog. Wow. Get out. Get up on the road. Get yourself a ride. Well, Mom's right. I'm a I'm a pitiful sight. I'm there shivering <laughs> on the side of the road in the worst snowstorm in history, 25 degree weather, and almost immediately I get picked up. A nice gentleman takes me into town and drops me off at the gas station. I don't even know the name of the city anymore. I, it wasn't even a city; it was just a small town. And I go in and I talk to the uh, to the owner and I say, you know, we've we've crashed. We've crashed into this snowbank. We have to have a tow tow truck get us out. That's the only way we'll ever get out of this mess. And he says, okay, do you have any money? I said, well, you'll have to ask my mother. I don't have any money. He says, all right, I'll take a chance. So he sends a tow truck, and we pull the thing out, and uh, they haul it back into town. And my uh, the owner says, uh, well, Mrs. Archer, you're going you're gonna to need snow tires. 
or at the very least, you're going to need uh, snow chains. There's no way you can control this car based on the kind of wheels you have. And he says, can you pay me? She says, no, sir, I, I can't. I have a limited amount of cash. We have to have this cash to get to Virginia, but I can write you a check. And he says, is the check any good? <laughs> and she says, no, but if you wait a week and I, and I see my brother, I'm sure um, I'll have enough money to be able to, if you could just wait a week to cash it, you'll get your money. And the man just kind of, you know, his mouth drops open in shock. Yeah. And then he looks at me and I silently nod. And he says, All right, ma'am, I'll do it for you because he he trusts me. Yeah. <laughs> he says, like the first thing he said to me, he says, Well, you're pretty brave, son. I have a, a boy your age and I sure wouldn't want him out in these uh conditions. So he kinda like so when I nodded, he believed I was on the level, and uh, I vouched for my mother, and we got the snow tires. And the next thing we, you know, she's right back out on the road in the worst snowstorm in 30 years. But the tires are good now. Nice. And so the fear is over. And um, that's, we stopped in Vicksburg, Mississippi that night for spaghetti, and it was the best meal I think I've ever had because we were alive and safe. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is your mother was kind of right. You know, she, uh, she sent you out there and, and you, well, she probably understood how pathetic I was <laughs> Oh, <laughs> better than I did. So it was pretty cool. We get to Virginia. It's like two in the morning. The car can't even climb the hill. There's so much ice. So we just each grab a, a bag and walk up the hill and find the house. And mom says, I don't want to wake him up. Walk around and see if there's an open door somewhere. Well, darn if she if there wasn't an open door. So we go. Breaking in. We break in. We're in the cellar, kind of like the den, the family room. And this beautiful collie comes down, waddling down the steps. And our two dogs fall in love at first glance. And so they're busy kissing. And this is the worst watchdog I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I say, and I say, well, mom, you did it. I don't know how you did it, but you did it. But in my own thoughts, I thought my mother had lost her mind. I don't know why she came. I think she just needed sanctuary. I think she was at her wit's end, but she literally almost cost me my life in the process. Was, wasn't a phone call an easier way to do this i would imagine that you felt unsafe like you realized you were i not. felt betrayed i felt betrayed i felt like my mother was had lost her mind i no longer had confidence in her and i will tell you i grew up at least three years i left houston 11 years old and i was 14 by the time i got to virginia <laughs> so in a way she's she was right it was time for me to grow up in a hurry yeah, it sounds like she had a very, very tough time during that period. I don't know what, why my mother was off that year. It was two years after the divorce. She had been through, she had already gotten married once and divorced. The guy, the son of a bitch was a ex-con. He stole my silver dollar collection to pay for his booze. 
Have you ever seen a worse loser? <laughs> no. One night she crawled into bed. My mother crawled into bed with me and I said, Mom, what are you doing here? And he says, Well, my husband's going to beat me and he won't come anywhere near the dog. So this is the only place I'm safe. Wow. And so, I mean, she was, she was pretty, pretty desperate. She couldn't pay bills. She couldn't keep a man. She couldn't find a friend. She couldn't keep a job. So here we are one summer, probably the summer of 60, 61, I guess. And um, she's just a mess. She's been crying all day long. And then suddenly she just runs out of her bedroom. She's poorly dressed. She runs out into a pouring rainstorm and slams the door without saying a word to me. Hmm. And I'm terrified. Again, I'm about 11 years old. Yeah, what do you think at that moment? Well, here's the problem, Chad. I had a very mediocre father who um, was made even worse by the fact that he had married a woman who had broken up my parents' marriage. And this woman despised me. She didn't want me anywhere near my father. So if something happened to my mother, Mm. I would be forced to live with this man and that woman. And I knew for a fact that that woman would never allow me to have my dog. Oh. So even though I had a very unstable mother, I would much rather live with her and keep my dog than go live with an uncaring man who didn't want me. Totally natural. So when she splits out of the house, I covertly tailor. And the thing about Houston is we don't have any major rivers, but we have tons of bios that turn into giant rivers whenever it rains. Hmm. My mother made her way directly to the swollen bio that is like raging, full of water. And she goes right to the edge, and I'm ready. I'm swear. I'm hiding behind a tree, but I'm ready to jump in that water if that's what's necessary. Yeah. She collapses on the um, on the grass, on the wet grass. She's suddenly knee deep in mud, and she's on her fa- you know on her stomach, on her face, crying her head off, just screaming with tears, wailing is probably the best word for it, and I am terrified. So I find another tree that's even closer to her and I keep a steady eye on her. She gets up and I swear she looks like the swamp creature. She's soaking wet. Her hair is, you know, stringy wet. Her face is covered in mud. Her clothes are covered in mud. She's pretty scary looking person. And she takes a look. She takes a look at the, at the raging bio and then she turns and looks at the home she looks back at the bio and then she turns and starts heading towards uh, the apartment slowly I'm much faster than she is so I let her pass me and I take a roundabout way and manage to uh, beat her back to the apartment I don't want her to know that I've been witnessing this scene Yeah, and uh, I'm in the shower by the time she comes in the house and about, I don't know, I don't know when it was, two months later, four months later, six months later, I don't know, in a conversation she let pass that she had once thought about suicide. And I pretend like, you know, it's a casual conversation. I said, well, what stopped you? 
She says, I, I just couldn't bring myself to doom, you, to doom you to go live with your father. That's the only reason I changed my mind. Wow. That's so, so sad. So the, the one kind of support or bright spot you had at the time was your dog, Terry. Uh, I feel like the, the story of the U-Haul kind of shows Terry really well. Could you, could you talk about the U-Haul incident? I'm eight years old when I get my dog, Terry. He's a border collie, very athletic dog. Mm-hmm. And I'm eight years old, and I don't know anything about anything. But we live on the edge of town, a new uh, a new area of Houston called Sharpstown. It's inner city now. That's how long it's been. But Wow. So I'm walking. So I, I never have to put Terry on a leash because there's no traffic. You know, he's a puppy. We walk around through the fields. We have fun. Mm-hmm. And one day we're on the way back home when out of nowhere, this giant Sears delivery truck comes barreling down the street. I am frozen with terror because my dog isn't paying a bit of attention. He's walking right across the path of this giant truck. And I start waving my arms. I scream at the dog. The dog sees the truck and like a deer in the headlights just just freezes which is the worst thing the dog could have done <laughs> yeah meanwhile the the driver has seen this poor little dog and slams his brakes as hard as he possibly could he can't stop he hits the dog but he doesn't pin the dog under the wheels he sends the dog flying Head over head over head. Must have rolled a half dozen, ten times before he comes to a stop. He just sits there for a second, looks around, doesn't even see me. He gets up and runs home. <laughs> I st- I, I'm amazed that the dog is alive and, and seemingly unhurt. So I, 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 I walk over to the... Uh, I'm in tears, I'm, and I may cry even now, but I go over to this driver, and I just say, he rolls down his window. I said, sir, thank you. Thank you for slamming on your brakes. My dog owes his life to you, and I'm very grateful. And the guy just grins, you know, because he's done a, a really good thing. Save this dog's life. So here's the funny thing. My dog loved to run away. That was the happiest. That made him happier than anything else in the world was to run away and and wander the neighborhood. So one day I come home from school and he's gone. I don't know how he's escaped, but he's gone again. I go looking for him and I see him coming home before he sees me coming to look for him. So I'm curious. I just kind of, I just want to know something. I hide behind a house or, or a tree or something, and the dog comes to a street, and he stops, and he looks left, and then he looks <laughs> right, and he walks across the street, just Very like you know, a school dog. kid who's been, who's been trained. He got a, this dog got a second chance, and he was so damn smart, <laughs> he figured it out. Nice. I... I was really impressed. So you asked about the U-Haul. Yeah. So I think it's 63, 1963. 
I don't have much going for me, but I am I am good in school. I guess you would call me a nerd. Okay. And it's summer, and I figure, well, it's time to it's time to go to the library and get some stuff to read. And so I'm about to leave the house, and Terry looks at me and says, where are you going? Because we had a, an agreement. I didn't go anywhere without him. <laughs> nice. But the problem is that the library is in downtown Houston. You know, skyscrapers, traffic, mm-hmm. very dangerous. And I said, Terry, it's just not safe. And he gives me that look. <laughs> and I said, all right, all right, you're coming too. <laughs> so I put him on a long uh, piece of rope. And I take a side street, you know, so he's running along beside the bike. I've got this rope and we get to with about 10 blocks of the library, maybe even closer, maybe six blocks. And I, and I get off the bike and we walk the rest of the way. Cause you know, the traffic's too, too dangerous now for this arrangement. Okay. And I get a dozen books and I put them in my basket and we head home again on the side street. So this, um, pickup truck comes up beside me maybe even a i guess it was a delivery truck plus it had a u-haul in back son of a gun if this u-haul doesn't clip my handlebar and send me flying i mean i am literally tossed into space now the dog is in no danger he's running along beside me on the sidewalk so he's safe but i'm not when i land I hit with a thud on my hip, and the U-Haul goes straight over my ankle, crippling me. Yeah. My hip isn't working. My ankle isn't working. I can't get up. I am on the city street in the middle of, you know, a Houston busy street, and I am terrified. So I crawl to the curb, and this nice lady comes out of a store she sees what has happened and she says, son, that wasn't your fault. Are you okay? And it wasn't my fault. The guy had swerved into my lane. Sure. And I said, well, I, I think I'm okay, but I'll, I'm pretty sure I need to see a doctor. So the woman calls an ambulance and calls my mother at the same time. Meanwhile, I sit on the curb with my dog, Terry. The ambulance shows up pretty fast. It turns out the hospital's maybe only a mile away. Okay. I'm a mess. I'm in a lot of pain and I'm scared. And these guys says, well, we need to take you to the hospital. You, you need, you need help. And I said, well, what about my dog? And they said, what do you mean? What about, what do you mean? What about your dog? The dog can't come in the ambulance. I said, are you serious? And they said, absolutely. We'll lose our job. And I said, well, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting in the ambulance. I'll just stay here and wait for my mother if that's what it takes. Hmm. And they said, you're crazy. You could be in a lot of trouble. You're bleeding. You could end up paralyzed, kid. Get in the ambulance. You can leave the dog here at this uh, store. I say, there is no way in hell. And I use that was a big word for me in those days. There's no way in hell I am leaving my dog. I would rather be crippled for the rest of my life than leave my dog behind. Don't you guys get that? Wow. So they start arguing with me and one guy takes a step towards me and Terry stands up and looks at him. Doesn't (laughs) growl, doesn't bare his teeth. He just stands up and stares at the guy and the man freezes. He just freezes. 
I am telling you, this dog senses my fear and he will die before he lets this man touch me. Yeah. Now the other guy tries to come up from behind and Terry turns around <laughs> and looks at him and now he freezes. Meanwhile, a crowd is starting to uh, develop. Pedestrians have stopped to watch an unfolding drama. <laughs> Cars have parked on the other side of the road and they're watching out of the window. And these guys says, we, we want you to tie your dog up so we can get you in the ambulance. <laughs> I say, you guys are crazy. You didn't hear me? I will never, ever leave my dog. And they just stare at me. So, well, in that case, we're just going to have to go. And I said, then go. It's okay. I will not leave my dog. Well, now the people say, someone says, let the kid's dog go with them. What's wrong with you guys? And everyone starts to chime in. Yeah, let the dog go with the kid. And they start clapping, you know, and these two guys look at each other. And one of them laughs because, like, I've got 20 people cheering for me now and cheering for the dog. <laughs> and they say, well, all right, if we let the dog go with you, can you get the dog in the ambulance without him biting us? And I said, absolutely. And so I asked the nice lady to hold the dog's rope. They put me in the gurney. They put me in the ambulance. And then I say, Terry, just like that, he jumps in the ambulance and he goes to the hospital with me. Nice. Real nice. There's a little, little epitaph to this. I was badly hurt. I did not walk again that summer. Um, but the nice lady had saved my books. Ah. I spent the entire summer in bed reading those books. Nice. I could hop to the kitchen to make a peanut butter sandwich, and the deal was Terry got the corner of every sandwich. <laughs> but I was, I was mean to him. I made sure that he, he got the peanut butter on the roof of his mouth. It drove him crazy, oh. but he enjoyed, he enjoyed the struggle. <laughs> and um, I won the book club award. For the most books read that summer, of course, you know, I didn't have much else to do, did I? No. And, and because the lady brought the books, like, you didn't wind up with library fines, too. Right, right. So it was books and Terry, and uh, and I healed, and guess what? My mother even thanked me for having the accident. She thanked you? She sued the company and got enough money to get out of debt for a couple months. <laughs> So I took one for the team. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> Welcome to hopefully my... she didn't start sending you out as like a <laughs> ambulance chaser. She says, Sonia, Sonia, you need to like go, yeah, you need to go out and get hit by another truck. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go into school a little bit. So you, you went to this new private school and at least at first you were able to kind of, you know, blend in. Yeah, blend in, do things with the kids. And that changed when you went on a camping trip. So they have a policy called uniforms. We're all supposed to wear the same uniform. And the concept behind the uniform is that the scholarship kids and the rich kids blend in together. And so theoretically, no one knows who's rich and who's not. Good idea. It's kind of a joke because, believe it or not, rich kids are so well-trained they can tell a person's socioeconomic status by the socks they wear and the <laughs> shoes they wear. Fortunately, there was no real distinction. You know, I got invited to the birthday parties. I got invited to some other kind of parties. 
uh, for about three years, and I was one of the gang. But something kind of sad happened in the seventh grade, so I'm kind of lonely. Because we move all the time, my mother keeps getting evicted from these apartments. I, I have yet to make a single neighborhood friend. Wow. And since the kids I know at school live pretty far away, I'm dependent on my mother to drive me. So I don't really have a whole lot of friends. And I have an English teacher, I guess he was my math teacher at that point, named Mr. Curran, who I go to because he's the nicest teacher I have. And I say, Mr. Curran, I don't have a single friend in the world. Do you have any suggestions? And he says, well, you know, why don't you uh, join the uh, St. John's Boy Scout troop? You know, a lot of the boys who are in your seventh grade class are also in that pack. So I took his advice and, and signed up immediately. So here it is, January, and I guess I'm probably about 14. And I don't know what it is with my luck with weather, but it is the coldest January weekend in memory. Almost so cold it's ready to snow. And we are on this camping trip, and it is raining like you wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's just pouring, pouring, pouring. Well, I'm doing pretty good because the tent I'm in belongs to some rich kid. But my sleeping bag is something I bought with the money my dad had given me for Christmas. And it was probably the most inferior sleeping bag, you know, money could buy. And I am (laughs) freezing cold. I am just shivering. Even though I'm in this tent, I am shivering. And I start to develop a fever. Mm-hmm. And we can't leave the tent. I mean, the whole place is like a mud a mud pit. And it's raining, and I am shivering, and I can't get warm, and I'm getting scared because it's getting worse. Well, I hear a rumor that one of the boys wants to go home. Fred is like considered the richest boy in the entire school. Uh-huh. I get some kind of like coat to put over my head and I stagger to Fred's tent and I I confirm that someone is coming to pick him up. Now, here's the deal. To this day, I still don't know how Fred got in touch with the outside world because there were no buildings (laughs) at this campsite. It was just tents. It was in the middle of, of a Texas forest. I guess enough money. I don't know. He Maybe he paid somebody to go into town to call his dad or something. But Fred confirmed that a car was coming from him. And he said, <laughs> sure, if you need a ride home, I'll be happy to help you. Nice. So this chauffeur comes up and starts to lay down planks. So Fred, Master Fred, doesn't have to get his feet dirty. <laughs> On a camping trip. <laughs> oh, my God. It's something out of Richie Rich. Yeah. And everyone's like watching because Fred's the only one who's deserting the camp. And then there's me. Fred looks at me and he says, Rick, you're really sick, aren't you? I said, yeah, I I am. I'm pretty sick. He says, all right, well, then you're going to need to sit in the front with the chauffeur and I'll sit in the back. (laughs) 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 And I'm looking at the chauffeur, you know, it's like, oh, my God, what are you doing? (laughs) But I, I, you know, he's got to keep his job. So here I am in the front seat with the chauffeur. Poor guy. Oh, my God, it's warm. And there's music on. And the chauffeur asked me, 
the, the address of my home and I just give it to him without thinking and I pass out. It's the first time I've had sleep in 24 hours. And when I wake up, we are at my rundown apartment in a, in a Houston ghetto. Mm. Paints coming off the building, the plaster's on the ground. And Fred is wide-eyed. And he says, did the, did the driver get the correct address? Do you live here? And I just hit myself. I slapped myself on the head. What have I done? In the past, anytime I got a ride home, I went, had him drop me off at a house that looked nice two blocks away. I have literally brought this young boy to where I live, and he gives me the most absolute look of pity I had ever seen in my life. It's like, I've heard of poor children, but I've never actually met one before. As the wealthiest kid in the school and the poorest kid the in the school. The wealthiest kid of the school has seen where poor people live for the first and he and he can't believe it. How how do I even exist? I stagger out of the car. I thank I thank the driver. I thank Fred, but the car doesn't leave. Fred has rolled down the window and he wants to watch me actually walk in oh, the God. building to confirm with his own eyes. That I actually do live here. And I turn and, and wave at him because I am grateful. I mean, this guy may have saved my life because I was that sick. Yeah. But there was a, a blowback to this event. The uh, invitations to the birthday parties mysteriously disappeared. I wasn't invited to basketball get to get-togethers anymore. It's like mm-hmm. no one was ever mean to me, but I am, I could see that I was shunned. Fred had told everyone the story of where I lived, mm-hmm. and I they suddenly realized that I was low man on the totem pole, and uh, they were going to stick to their own kind. Yeah. So that was the turning point. I was in the seventh grade, and I was suddenly an outcast. It's horrible. It's like something out of a Richie Rich or some movie. So... At one point, you were still trying. You were doing a bunch of stuff in school. You were, you were in the school play. You did the spelling bee and like got second. You were in basketball, football, and then you quit all of those. Right. Why did you quit? So I kind of like finish out the seventh grade, and I figure you know I'll try again in the eighth grade. It turns out I do have some things going for me. I'm a. a big, strapping, healthy kid. I make good grades. I'm a good athlete. You know, I'm poor, but there are a lot of poor people in this world who do just fine. My biggest problem is that I have no social skills being this only child. Mm -hmm. But I figure if I participate in some activities, I might, you know, the Boy Scout troop didn't work out, but let's try again. Yeah. Persistence. The first thing I try is, oh, well, it kind of hurts to tell these stories, but let's get to work. So the first thing I try is the school play. It's a Pirates of Penzance or something like that. And Mr. Chidsey, the headmaster, is also the director of the play. And he has me cast as a drunken pirate with one eye, which is perfect because I only have one eye. So I'm the only kid in the school (laughs) who doesn't mind wearing a patch. (laughs) You were totally typecast. I was perfect. I was perfect. So uh, 
I can even remember. He even gave me a line. It's like, uh, bring me, bring me wine. I love wine. I'll drink anything. Give me wine. And then I, I fall over a railing and crash to the floor. That's my big line. And I'm great at it. I bellow out my line and I fall over and I have this patch and I'm great. Everyone always laughs. Well, we're getting close to um, dress rehearsal. And uh, we have to be at the school late one night. And I say, Mom, uh, will you give me a ride to school? And will you come pick me up? And she says, no, I've got a date. I said, Mom, I can't take the bus. It's like at nighttime. I'll have to go downtown and get a transfer. The bus ride will be an hour one way, an hour another way. I'm going to be on a curb waiting for the bus with these homeless people downtown. Can't you just give me a ride? She said, no. I've been waiting for this guy to ask me out, and I'm not going to take a chance. Well, I lost my temper. I, I got so mad at my mother, I wasn't going to beg anymore, and I sure as hell wasn't going to ride a damn city bus at 11 o'clock at night to be in this play. So I went to Mr. Chidsey and I quit. And this like, why? Why would you quit? You're great. He begged me to stay. You're the well, only kid with one eye in the school. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Where am I going to get another kid with one eye <laughs> on short notice? Well, I am, I am, I want so bad to say yes, but I can't bring myself to tell him the truth. Uh-huh. And the sad thing is, if I told him the truth, he probably would have sent somebody to pick me up. Yeah. But I just didn't have those kind of guts. I'm this pitiful kid, and I do the wrong thing. I quit. So I try again. I try out for the eighth grade basketball team. I am a shoe in with basketball because I'm the tallest boy in my class and I'm a really good athlete. And even despite only having one eye, I find I, I'm able to make this thing work, or at least I think I can. Okay. So I make the team, and then the coach get, hands us our schedule. And there's about a dozen night games at other schools, none of which I know where they are. Uh. And I take this thing home to my mother, and I say, Mom, are you going to be able to give me a ride to these places? She says, well, I might be able to make one or two, but I can't guarantee I'm going to take you to all these places. Can't you get a ride? Well, here's the deal. I'm the poorest kid in school. There's not one person who goes to my school who lives within five miles of me. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a friend. You know, I don't have like someone I can say, you think your mother would give me a ride home? Yeah. I'm figuring I'm going to be stuck on the west side of town, 10 miles from home at 8 o'clock at night, and I have no idea what the bus routes are. Well, here we go. I fold again. I lose. I get angry at my mother. Okay. And I go to the coach and say, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to drop out. Well, this look of, huh? Why? Why would you want to drop out? And I just, and I lied to the man. I said, well, you know, sir. I only have one eye, and I, I'm not sure 
you know, maybe I'll run into somebody and get knocked down. And I, you know, I probably don't want to take any chance, which is an absolute lie. The truth is I have this pathetic mother and I have no friends. But you do, you do have this excuse available to you anytime. And I have this simple (laughs) face saving excuse that'll justify why I'm quitting the team. And the guy nods, you know, it's semi plausible. I do want to point out that you called having one eye face saving, which I think is kind of a funny contrast. Well, actually, it wasn't face saving because my eyes didn't match. It turns out that when you have a false eye, uh, when it's dark, one eye, one pupil, the good, the healthy eye pupil expands while the other one stays the same. So I was always having my friends or the basketball players say, why don't your eyes match? <laughs> so to finish out the eighth grade, I have finished second place in this class spelling me two years in a row to Nancy Paxton, the smartest girl in our class. Sixth grade, second place. Seventh grade, second place. There's just, and there's not even any competition for third. It's like her and me and everyone else has gone after a couple rounds. Okay. I am so angry at myself that I can't force myself to go out for the spelling bee. Because, I mean, I tried as hard as I could the year before and I couldn't beat her. Yeah. And I say, you know, I'm, I don't want to quit. I'm just not even going to enter. So a week passes after the spelling bee, and Nancy stops me in the hall, and she says, Rick, how did you do in the spelling bee? I said, what do you mean, how did I do in the spelling bee? You should know I didn't go out for it. And this, like, look of horror crosses her face. She says, well, why didn't you go out? I said, well, I'm tired of losing to you, Nancy. She says, well, I'm... I'm tired of beating you. I wanted to win this. I wanted you to win this year, so I didn't go out either. Oh, that's so sad. (laughs) Staring at her, and she's staring at me, and I suddenly realize she actually kind of likes me. Ah. You know, she respects me enough that she wanted me to have this neat moment so that we could, like, kind of be pals together. And I just say, well, that was a stupid thing to do. And I walk off, you know, I say the absolute worst thing I can say. Well, that was a stupid thing to do because I'm embarrassed. With this one person who could have been your friend. Right. I could have actually even had a girlfriend. I mean, she was a pretty girl. And I blew it because I am such, I am in such a miserable place. Yeah. So what you should ask me next is how I made my comeback. Okay, so uh, how did you make your comeback? I have a pretty tough Christmas, and I have a pretty tough spring. But I, I have this long talk one day with Mr. Chidsey. All right, let me, let me talk about Mr. Chidsey for a second, because he's pretty important. So my father, because of the divorce degree, has been strong-armed by my mother into paying for three years at St. John's. But the tuition is stiff, and my father is a middle-class salary as an engineer. He cannot wait to get out from under this burden and have his new wife stop needling him about it. So when it comes to the end of the sixth grade, my father pulls me inside and says, you know, this money's being wasted on this school. Go to public school, and I'll put the money I would have paid for private school in a savings account, and it'll be there for you in college when the time comes. 
So we call that dad's college pledge. But the upshot is he ain't going to pay anymore. Yeah. Well, I am forlorn. I I mean, if I lose St. John's, I have two things keeping me glued together, my dog and my school. And even even though you're having a hard time at school and it's lonely, like it's still important for you. I am having trouble socially, but academically, my teachers really like me Uh because they can see how hard I work. And they also get that I'm overcoming some real handicaps to do the work here. I mean, they are actually reaching out to me. So if I lose this support system, I'm I'm afraid that I'm just going to fall to pieces. I'm already just barely hanging in there. So when my father says, forget it, that's over, you, you need to leave, my mother's in tears. And so she goes to Mr. Chidsey. She says, I'm not going to be able to afford to send Rick to school anymore. Can you name a good public school? And I'll just, I don't think she said it, but what she meant to say was, and so in the next time I get evicted, I'll just move into that school district. <laughs> Very practical. Well, Mr. Chidsey like looks at her blankly and he says, well, um, I'll tell you what, Mrs. Archer, I'll, I'll get back to you. Just give me a day or two and I'll research some of the schools. Well, what he really was doing was he was going to the board of directors and he was asking permission to give me a scholarship. Nice. And so he gets on the phone and says, Mrs. Archer, if I offer you a half tuition scholarship, can you send your son? Can you keep him in school? She says, no, I I can't afford that. But I'll tell you what, I'll ask my brother. So she calls Uncle Dick on the phone and Uncle Dick likes me. He sees a lot of himself in me. So he says, all right, uh, Mary, I'll, I'll pay, you know, I'll pay his way. So I've gone to St. John's for two years on this scholarship. And meanwhile, Mr. Chidsey's my ancient history Bible teacher. <laughs> and and you were, that was all kind of a sort of a revelation to you, right? Because you were raised as a Quaker? I, I am a Quaker. I was raised as a Quaker. Okay. And I know nothing about the Bible, <laughs> but I love Bible history. I mean, it's fascinating. And one day, I I just can't stand anymore. I have to ask Mr. Chidsey a question. I say, Mr. Chidsey, Israel, or whatever it was called back in those days, everybody conquers Israel. I mean, the Egyptians conquer Israel, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, you know, the Syrians, the Philistines. Every chapter, there's someone new that conquers Israel. What's with Israel? Why does everyone want to conquer Israel? (laughs) And Mr. Chinsey says, well, you know, they aren't really that interested in Israel because Israel doesn't have very many natural resources. It's really just desert, sand and rock and Uh mountains and very little in the way of water. Yeah. But it turns out that Israel's in the crossroads of civilization. Every, Every army that wants to get from here to there has to go through Israel So they just go ahead and conquer it while they're on their way through. And that's why Israel (laughs) keeps getting beaten all the time. It's like when you go across town, you're like, I want to pick up something in the story. Like, well, I'll stop at the pharmacy on the way and, you know, conquer Israel. Yeah, let's just go ahead and conquer Israel like everyone else does. (laughs) Well, I I said, that just just blows my mind. Is that how that country got to be so tough? And he says, well, that's a very interesting question. Let me just tell you, the Israelites these days are pretty tough, and I think some of it has to do with their their past. Well, at any rate, 
He says, but Rick, I have a question. Why did you quit my play? You're so good. I wanted you in that play. And I started to cry. Here I am, this tough 14-year-old kid, you know, full of pride. And it hits me at like this really weak place. Yeah. <laughs> and I tell him the truth. I said, I don't, I have it really tough with my mother. And I quit because I just didn't want to take the bus at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday night. And I, and I was scared. Yeah. And I blew it, Mr. Chidsey. I'm sorry. <laughs> Excuse me a second. Yeah. No, I, I get it. And well, that's basically what he said. He started to nod. He says, okay, now I get it. No, I didn't know. I didn't know that was what the problem was, but yeah, I get it. And thank you for, thank you for telling me the truth. And it cheered me up so much to finally get this off my chest to, you know, to get this rapport with this man who had been so good to me that I'd let down that I cheered up. And, you know, it's really, it's very uh, special to have someone even ask that, you know, in, in a lot of schools, the, the teachers well, might not even know the names of the kids, but. This school was special in its own way. This school, the teachers, especially, they took care of me without actually letting me know what they were doing. And I think this was one of the incidents that kind of like. You know, I think Mr. Chidsey may have said some things, and maybe even Mr. Curran. I mean, yeah. some rumors were starting about me. So Mr. Chidsey goes to bat for me again. I'm still in the eighth grade. My uncle calls up my mother, says, I'm sorry, Mary, but I'm starting my own business, and I've got four kids of my own, and I just can't swing it anymore. I can't, I can't help uh, Richard in the ninth grade, will you ever forgive me? And my, my mother says, well, of course, you know, we're just grateful for what you and Lynn have done for us. So she brings me the bad news and I, and I spend the night crying, you know, that's it. Ninth grade. I'm, I'm out of here. So she calls Mr. Chidsey again, and here we go. What's the best school? And he says, well, Mrs. Archer, let me, let me get back to you on that. Yeah. Well, this time he swings a full scholarship. <laughs> nice. He likes me. Yeah. You know, he re he remembers this talk and he says, Mrs. Archer, your son has been an honor student every quarter for the last five years. And he's an A student in my class in Bible history. I don't want to lose this boy. I want him to stay here. I want him to graduate from St. John's. If I give, if we give him a full scholarship, can you pay for his books and his activities and, and things like that? She says, well, Mr. Chidsey, I, I, it's going to be tough, but I, I absolutely will try. So suddenly I have a new lease on life. So I want to explain this very clearly. Mm -hmm. I am a loner. Yeah. I have few friends, maybe a couple shy boys at the school. But I'm going back to St. John's in the ninth grade. I should not have quit the basketball team. I knew I made a big mistake. I'm going to make amends for that. Okay. I kind of like look at myself. I'm tall. You know, I'm athletic. Sometimes the girls smile at me. You know, maybe they know I'm poor. But, you know, if I make the basketball team and they see that I'm a good player, you know, one of these girls might take a, 
a chance on me. Yeah. So basketball to me is like my, oh, oh, I, I left something out. I, I didn't tell you about Steve. Got to tell you about Steve. It's New Year's Eve. Steve is the big man on campus at the school across the street. Steve has this New Year's Eve party on the lawn, and he has 20 girls hanging on him. <laughs> Steve becomes my idol. He's older than me. He's like four years ahead of me, but he's my hero. He would be my hero, too. In fact, you know, I didn't even know Steve when I was younger, and he was my hero. He's my hero now. <laughs> <laughs> so a month passes. And it's spring now in Houston, and Steve is lofting golf balls from his yard to the junior high school 200 yards away. <laughs> Mind you, in order for him to do this, he has to hit the ball over a really busy street where all the mothers let their kids off. Wow. So there's the street is constantly full of traffic. Uh-huh. Does this stop Steve? No. no. His arc is so good. He doesn't come within 40 feet of hitting anything. He looks like a pro. Uh So I remember how he had all these girls. And then I can't believe how good he is at golf. So I go over like a little buddy and and stand there and admire him. I say, Steve, what's going on here? And he says, well, guess what, Rick? I just got a, a scholarship to Trinity University in San Antonio. A golf scholarship. Uh huh. I said, that's amazing. And he says, yeah, I need to practice my game. You know, I'm really looking forward to this. And I said, Steve, I have a question. Those girls at New Year's Eve, where did they all come from? <laughs> he says, well, you know, that's kind of an interesting story. He says, you know, I know I'm a, a, a little bit older than you, but I, I lived here in the same neighborhood as you do. So, I'm probably no wealthier than you are or whatever, mm-hmm. but my father died and I'm going to high school. I'm a freshman. I don't know anybody and I'm crying all the time and I'm, my mother's having trouble with bills. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds familiar. And Steve says, I don't know a soul, but I see these guys who are real cocky and I want to know the secret of their success. And they say, well, we play golf. We go to the country club and we meet all these girls. And he says, you're kidding. He says, you know, I like golf. I played a couple times with my dad. And they said, well, come come over to River Oaks Country Club with us and, and play around and see what the coach thinks. Maybe you can make the team. And so that's what I did. I'm a freshman. I'm not very good, but I can hit the ball a long way. And the coach likes what he sees, and he puts me on the team. The next thing you know, a year or two later, I'm winning all these tournaments. And there are girls coming up to me like you wouldn't believe. I say, are you serious, Steve? He says, yeah. Sports is the easiest way to meet girls in high school. Unless you got money, but you don't got any money, and neither do I. But girls don't care. If you're a star, they'll go out with you. <laughs> well, that, you know, 20 light bulbs are going on in my head. If I'm a star, they'll go out with me. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know, I have a, um, a summer project. I play basketball every day. I go to the nearby park, and I shoot for three hours layups, jump shots, use my offhand, 
Meanwhile, Terry's running around the park chasing squirrels and birds. He's happy. I'm happy. I'm going to be a star in the ninth grade. Basketball is my world, and it's going to be my key to popularity. The lonely loser kid who no one pays a bit of attention to finally has his vehicle. If you enjoyed my interview with Rick, please rate and review Intriguing Interviews at Apple Podcast. Because it only takes a moment and it makes it far more likely you'll get to enjoy more episodes like this in the future. And if you want to learn more about Rick Archer, visit ssqq.com. That's ssqq.com. You can also learn more about Rick in the next episode of Intriguing Interviews. In our second interview, you'll get to hear how his brilliant plan to become the big man on campus during high school went horribly wrong. Rick will share how he became such an outcast that the sea of kids in the hallways at school literally parted to let him walk by. He'll reveal why he nearly killed another boy. And he'll share how getting caught stealing led to him getting hired for a life-changing job. That and more next time on Intriguing Interviews.